Welcome to the Butterfly Empire Podcast. raped and tortured at least 28 men before killing them and burying their bodies. He would lure young boys with candy that he got from his family's candy factory. This is how he became known as the Candy Man. This is Monsters. Welcome back to the Butterfly Empire. Today we are covering Dean Arnold Coral. He was an American serial killer, a pederast, and abducted, raped, and tortured, and murdered a maximum of 28 teenage boys and young men between 1970 and 1973 in Houston, Texas. He was aided by two teenage accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley, the crimes which became known as the Houston Mass Murderers. came into light when Henley fatality shot Coral. Upon discovery, it was considered the worst example of serial murders in the U.S. history. Coral's victims were typically lured with an offer of a party or a lift to one of the various locations he resided in between 1970 and 1973. They would then be restrained either by the force or deception. Each was killed either by strangulation or shooting with a 22 caliber pistol. Coral and his accomplices buried 17 other victims in a rented boat shed. Four other victims were buried in woodland near Lake Sam Rayburn. One victim was buried on the beach in Jefferson County, and at least six victims were buried on the beach on the Bolivar Peninsula. Brooks and Henley confessed to assisting Coral in several abductions and murders. Both were sentenced to life imprisonment in their subsequent trials. Coral was known as the Candyman and the Pied Piper because he and his family had previously owned and operated a candy factory in Houston Heights, and he had been known to give free candy to local children. December 24, 1939, to Arnold Coral and Mary Robinson. He had a younger brother named Stanley. Arnold would later admit that he didn't really like children and was a strict father. Arnold and Mary divorced in 1946. Arnold was eventually drafted into the United States Air Force and was stationed in Memphis, Tennessee. Mary followed in order for the boys to remain to have a relationship with their father, back together, and ended up remarrying. They moved to Pasadena, Texas, a small town just outside of Houston. The second marriage only lasted about three years before Arnold and Mary were once again divorced. Mary then married a clock salesman named Jake West, and the couple had a daughter together named Joyce. When Dean was still in high school, Mary and Jake opened their own candy business called Pecan Prince. The teenage boy would operate the candy machines that were in the family garage. 
Dean and his brother would package pralines, Divinity, and pecan candies after school. It wasn't long until the candy business was so successful that they moved from the garage to their own candy shop in Houston. After high school, Dean began living in an apartment over the candy shop and would give out candy to young boys in the area. This is how he became known as the Candy Man. He would also bring some of those boys back to the candy factory after hours, something that Jake was not thrilled with. Jake told Mary that he thought Dean might be gay and she insisted that he wasn't. Mary was very open about her disliking of homosexuality. She openly claimed that gay people were disgusting and said that Dean was a, quote, loyal, obedient, helpful, loving, and a good normal boy, end quote. This is probably why Dean kept his attraction to other males a secret. Mary divorced Jake and opened the Coral Candy Company. Dean was listed as the vice president of operations. Dean got drafted into the U.S. Army in 1964 and attended basic training at Fort Polk, Louisiana. He made it ended up at Fort Hood, Texas as a radio repairman, but he had applied for a hardship waiver claiming that he had to help run the family business. He was eventually granted an honorable discharge less than a year after entering the military. When he returned to Houston, he openly told his friends that he was gay. It didn't seem to be too much of a problem with them at the time. One of the people that Dean lured into his life with candy was 12-year-old David Brooks. He regularly hung out with all the kids that congregated around the candy factory. David would eventually start looking up to Dean as a father figure. When David was 14 years old, Dean started offering him money and gifts in exchange for letting him perform oral sex on the boys. The business was doing alright, but after another marriage and divorce, the business and moved to Dallas. Dean stayed in Houston and began working as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company. While living in his own apartment, Dean began surrounding himself with teenage boys. He would initially act as a big brother, but eventually his intentions became darker. Nobody knows what turned Dean Coral into a monster. He started out his life as a good student with a loving mother who ran a candy factory. He would regularly pay David for oral sex, but that was no longer enough. Sex with the boys, whether they wanted it or not. On September 25, 1970, Dean saw an 18-year-old college student and offered him a ride home. Instead, Dean brought him back to his apartment, most likely with an offer of drugs or alcohol. Once there, the candy man tied him up and raped him before strangling him. He took the body to High Island Beach, where he covered the body with lime, wrapped it in plastic, and buried it. Not long after, David got a shock when he entered Dean's apartment and found him walking around naked. Then, he saw two young boys strapped to homemade torture racks in his friend's bedroom. Dean was furious that David showed up unannounced and quickly kicked him out. He would go on to buy the young man's silence by gifting him a green 1969 Corvette. So, here we are. Really, Kitty? That's what you had to say? Okay, cool. Let's move on to the murders. Between 1970 and 1973, Coral is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. All of his victims were males aged 13 to 20, the majority of whom were in their mid-teens. Most victims were abducted from Houston Heights, which was then a low-income neighborhood northwest of downtown Houston, which most abductions he has assigned from one or more of both of his teenager accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. And other two victims, Billy Bullock and Gregory Malley Winkley, 
were formerly employees of Curl's Candy Company. Curl's victims were usually lured into either one of the two vehicles he owned, a Ford Econoline van and a Plymouth 3GX, or a 1969 Chevy Corvette, which was a mm, beautiful car. Beautiful! He is known to have purchased for books in, in the early 1971s. This enticement was typically an offer of a party or a gift, and the victim would be driving Coral's house. Now, Coral doesn't, the youth would be plied with alcohol and other drugs until they were passed out, tricked into donning handcuffs, and simply grabbed by force. They were then stripped naked and tied to either Coral's bed or usually a plywood torture board, which was regularly hung on the wall. Once minced, the victims would be sexually assaulted, beaten, tortured, and sometimes after several days killed by strangulation or shooting with a 22 caliber pistol. Their bodies were then tied in plastic sheeting and buried one in four places, which I mentioned earlier, of course. In several instances, Carl forced his victim to either phone or write to their parents by explanation for their absence in an effort to allow the parents' fears for their son's safety. He is also known to have retrained keepsakes, usually keys, from his victims. During the years in which he abducted the murder, his victim, Carl, often changed addresses. However, until he moved to Pasadena in the spring of 1973, he always lived in or close to Houston Heights. Okay. <clears throat> Andy Beatty, you are very talkative today, aren't you? You want to say hello? Yeah, say hello. First known murders. 18-year-old college freshman named Jeffrey Conan. And he was killed on September 25th, 1970. He was a hitchhiker from the University of Texas to his parents' home. Dropped off at the corner of Westenheimer Road and South Boss Road near the uptown area of Houston. Of course, drove off the corner led to his home, but he finally accepted and got in the vehicle. Whoop de woo. But during the Corrine's disappearance, Carl at the time lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street near the intersection of Westheimer Road. You know, when it was all said and done, booty woo, the body was buried in High Island Beach. August 10, 1973, it was found. Forensic scientists subsequently deducted the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation and a claw gag that had been placed in his mouth. Oh, sorry, I, was, I had a picture in my head. It was just woof. Body was found behind, buried behind a large boulder. Covered with a layer of lime, wrapped in plastic, naked and bound hand and foot with a nylon cord, suggesting he had been violated. About the time of Corrine's marriage, Brooks interrupted Coral in the act of sexually harassing, assaulting two teenage boys, which Coral had strapped to a four-poster bed. But, you know, Carl Brown was here. Here's the car. Shut up. Don't speak of it again. He accepted the car. Mm -hmm. Later, he told him that he killed them. And off to no more money. December 13, 1970. Bricks lured two 14 Spring Bridge youths 
Name's James Glass and Danny Yates. They were at a religious rally. He lured him away. He subsequently raped, strangled, and buried in a boat shed he had rented on November 17th. An electrical cord with alligator clips attached to each end and buried along Yates' body. Wasn't there another murderess with the last name Yates? I don't know. I have to Google it. I'm just gonna sum this up for you. His victim, first born was Jeffrey Allen Coney, twenty, November twentieth, nineteen fifty one, to September nineteen seventy. Next is Danny Michael Yates, James Eugene Glass, Jerry Lynn Waldrop, Donald Wayne Waldrop, Randall Lee Harvey, David William Hillegeist. Gregory Malley Winkle, Reuben Wolford Watson, Frank Anthony Aguirre, Mark Stephen Scott, John Ray Delomi, Billy Jean Bolch Jr. Willard Carmen Rusty Branch Jr. Stephen Kent Sickman. Richard Allen Kepner. Joseph Allen Lilas. William Ray Billy Lawrence. Raymond Stanley Ray Blackburn. Homer Luis Garcia, John Manning, Johnny Sellers, Michael Anthony Bolach, Charles Terry Coble, Marty Ray Jones, James Staten Dramala. Ooh, he was young. Richard Edward Humphrey, Humphrey, excuse me. Roy Eugene, Wiley J. Semino, United States in terms of the number of victims, surpassing the 25 killings attributed to Juan Corona, who was apprehended in California in 1971 for killing 25 men. Only John Wayne Gacy, who murdered 33 boys and young men and admitted to being influenced by press coverage of the Houston mass murders to manacle his victims prior to their abuse and murder, surpassed Coral and his accomplices' macabre record of known victims attributed to a single murder case in 1978. Families of Coral's victims slammed the HPD for quickly classifying the missing youngsters as runaways unworthy of further investigation. 
the relatives of the deceased teenagers said that the police noticed an ominous pattern in the disappearances of teenage boys from the Heights neighborhood. Other family members claimed that the HPD had dismissed their persistent insistence that their kids had no cause to flee. Donald and Jerry Waldrop's father, Everett Waldrop, complained to authorities that immediately after his boys vanished in 1971, an acquaintance had seen Carl buried what seemed to be bodies at his boat yard. The police responded by conducting a cursory search of the boat yard before dismissing the accusations as a hoax. Waldrop claimed that during one of his several visits to the HPD, the police chief simply informed him, What brings you here? You're well aware that your sons are fugitives. You don't run away from home with nothing except a swimming suit and 80 cents, Gregory Mallywinkle's mother said. All but four of Coral's victims had either lived in or had close ties to Houston Heights by May 1974. In 1983 and 1985, two more youths were identified, one of them, Richard Kepner also lived in Houston Heights. Willard Branch, the second young man, lived in Houston's Oak Forest neighborhood. On August 13th, a Harris County grand jury gathered to hear evidence against Henley and Brooks, the first witnesses to testify were Williams and Kearney, who related the events of August 7th and 8th that led to Carl's death. William Ridinger was another witness who testified about his treatment by Carl. On August 14th, the jury indicted Henley on three charges of murder and Brooks on one count after hearing over six hours of testimony from numerous people. Each youth's bail was set at $100,000. Henley's attorney, Charles Melzer, objected to the judgment, claiming it would violate Henley's constitutional rights. Henley had been charged with six killings and Brooks with four by the time the grand jury finished its inquiry. Henley was not charged with the death of Coral, which prosecutors decided was done in self-defense on September 18th. For their roles in the murders, Alma Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks were tried separately. Henley was accused with six murders between March 1972 and July 1973 and was brought to trial in San Antonio on July 1, 1974. Curley and Ridinger were among the dozens of witnesses called by the prosecution. Riding and testified before he was released, Coral strapped him to a torture board and abused him repeatedly. Police officers who read from Henley's written statements provided additional incriminating testimony. Henley mentioned enticing two of the victims for whose murder he had been charged, Cobble and Jones, to Coral's Pasadena home in one part of his confession. Cobble and Jones were each shackled to the same side of Carl's torture board following their initial mistreatment and torture at Carl's residence, according to Henley. Coral then forced the youth to fight each other, promising that the youth who killed the other would be permitted to live. Jones was chained to a board and forced to watch Cobble be abused, tormented, and shot to death before being indecently assaulted, tortured, and strangled with a Venetian blind string after several hours of each kid abusing the other. The two teenagers were killed two days after they went missing, on July 27, 1973. As police and medical examiners explained how their relatives were tortured and murdered, several victims' parents had to leave the courtroom to restore their composure. The state presented 82 pieces of evidence throughout the trial, including Coral's torture board and one of the boxes used to transport the victims. Hair was discovered within the box, which investigators concluded came from both Cobble and Henley, 
Henry did not testify because his defense attorney advised him not to. William Gray, his attorney, cross-examined many witnesses but did not summon any defense witnesses or specialists. Both counsels gave their closing arguments to the jury on July 15, 1974, the prosecution seeking life in prison and the defense seeking a not guilty finding. District Attorney Carol Vance apologized for not being able to seek the death penalty in his closing argument to the jury, saying the case was the most extreme example of man's inhumanity to man I have ever seen. Henry was found guilty of all six murders for which he was tried after a 92-minute jury deliberation. On July 16th, formal proceedings to sentence him convictions began, and on August 8th, Judge Preston Dial ordered that Henry serve each 99-year sentence consecutively for a total of 594 years, and he was transported to the Huntsville unit to begin his term. Henry appealed his sentence and conviction, claiming that the jury in his first trial had not been sequestered, that his attorney's objections to the presence of the news media in the courtroom had been overruled, and that the judge had overruled his defense team's evidence claiming that the first trial should not have been held in San Antonio. In December 1978, Henry's appeal was upheld, and he was given a new trial. On June 18, 1979, Henry's retrial began. Henry was defended by defense attorneys William Gray and Edwin Pegalo at this second trial, which was conducted in Corpus Christi. Henry's lawyers tried to have Henry's written remarks deemed inadmissible once more. Judge Noah Kennedy, on the other hand, decided that Henry's written remarks from August 9, 1973, were admissible evidence. Henry's attorneys called no defense witnesses and attacked the reliability of Henry's written confession again throughout the nine-day retrial. The defense further claimed that the state's evidence belonged to Dean Corral, not Elmer Wayne Henry. On June 27, 1979, the jury pondered for nearly two hours before reaching a decision. Henry was found guilty of six murders and sentenced to six consecutive 99-year prison terms. On February 27, 1975, Brooks was put on trial. He had been charged with four killings between December 1970 and June 1973, but was only brought to trial for the murder of 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence in June 1973. Jim Skelton, Brooks's defense attorney, maintained that his client had not committed any murders and attempted to depict Coral and, to a lesser extent, Henley as active participants in the murders. Assistant District Attorney Tommy Dunn flatly denied the defense's claim, telling the jury at one point, from the beginning, this defendant was a part of this slaughter, this murderous spree. If nothing else, he claims to have been a cheerleader. That's how he explained his presence to you. He was obviously involved. Brooks's trial lasted only a few days. The jury only deliberated for 90 minutes before reaching a decision. On March 4, 1975, he was convicted guilty of Lawrence's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Brooks seemed emotionless as the sentence was handed down, but his wife sobbed. Brooks also filed an appeal, claiming that the written confessions used against him were obtained without his knowledge of his legal rights, but his case was dismissed in May 1979. Henry is incarcerated at the Mark W. Michael Unit in Anderson County, Texas, where he is serving a life sentence. Since July 1980, several parole applications have been denied. In October 2025,
he will be eligible for parole again. Brooks was imprisoned at the Terrell unit near Resheron, Texas, for the rest of his life. On May 28, 2020, at the age of 65, he died in a Galveston hospital from COVID-19-related complications. Between September 1970 and August 1973, Coral and his associates are known to have killed at least 28 youths and young men. While it is believed that the true number of victims is far higher, the real number of victims claimed by Coral will never be known because he was dead shortly before his murders were revealed. To date, 27 of Coral's known victims have been identified, and the identity of a 28th victim whose body has never been discovered has been determined convincingly. All of these people were killed by shootings, strangling, or a combination of the two. And now we're at the part where Coral's death happened. Do you remember who Henley was, right? Make the accomplice of what's his face? Okay, the shooting and Carl's death. Henley awoke to find himself lying upon his stomach and Carl's snapping handcuffs onto his wrist. His mouth has been taped shut and his ankles have been bombed together. Curly and Williams lay beside Henley, securely bound with nylon rope, gagging with a heap of tape and lying face down on the floor. Curly had been stripped naked. Noting Henley had awoken, Coral removed the gag from his mouth. Henley protested in vain against Coral's action. Whereupon Coral reiterated him and then angry with Henley for bringing a girl to his house that he was going to kill all three teenagers after he had assaulted and tortured Curly. Initially stating, man, you blew it bringing that girl before shouting, I'm going to kill you all. But first, I'm going to have my fun. He then repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest before lifting him onto his feet, dragging him into the kitchen and placing a 22 caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Henley calmed Coral, promising to participate in the torture and murder of both Williams and Curly if Coral raped him. After approximately 30 minutes of discussion, Coral agreed and untied Henley, then carried Curly and Williams into his bedroom and tied them to the sides of his torture board. Curly on his stomach, Williams on her back. Coral then handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Williams' clothes, insisting that while he would rape and kill Curly, Henley would do likewise to Williams. Henley began cutting away Williams' clothes as the Coral undressed and began to assault it to torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened up by this point. Curly began writhing and shouting at Williams, whose gag Henley had been removed. Lifting her head and accidentally, is this for real? Uh, and he was like, yeah, it, 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 it is real. <laughs> Williams then asked Henley, are you going to do anything about it? Henley then asked Carl whether he might take Williams into another room. Carl ignored him, and then Henley then grabbed Carl's pistol, shouting, you've gone too far, Dean. As Carl clammed off Henley, Henley elaborated, I can't go any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. Coral approached Henley, saying, Kill me, Wayne! Henley stepped back a few paces as Coral continued to advance upon him, shouting, You won't do it! 
Handler then fired at Quarrel, hitting him in the forehead. The bullet failed to fully penetrate Carl's skull. He continued to lunge towards Hanley, whereupon the youth fired another two rounds, hitting Carl on the left shoulder. Quarrel then ran out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway. Hanley fired three additional bullets to his lower back and his shoulder, and Quarrel slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room, where the two other teenagers were bound. Quarrel died where he fell, his naked body laying face down towards the wall. Hanley later recalled that having shot Carl, the soul thought in his mind in moments immediately, therefore was that Carl would have been proud of the way he had behaved during the confrontation, adding that he had been training him to react quickly and forcefully, that he, this was exactly what he had done. After he shot Carl, Hanley released Curly and Williams from their torture board, and all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. Hanley noticed that Curly and Williams that they should simply leave, to which replied, No, we should call the police. Henley agreed and looked up the number for a personal PPD in Coral's telephone directory, contacting police. 8.24 a.m. August 8, 1973, Henley placed a call to the PPD. His call was answered by an operator named LaBelle Simmons. In his call, Henley blurred to the operator, You better come here right now. I just killed a man. Hanley gave the address to the operators as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena, as Colonel Willie. Curly Williams and Hanley waited upon Coral's porch for the police to arrive. Hanley mentioned to Curly that he had done that, killed by shooting four or five times. Minutes later, the PPB car arrived, 2020 Lamar Drive. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house, and the officer noted the 22 caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Hanley told the officers that he was the individual who had made the call, indicated that Curl's body was inside the house. After confiscating the pistol and placing Henley, Williams, and Curly inside the patrol car, the officer entered the burglar bungalow and discovered Coral's body inside the hallway. The officer returned to the car and read Henley and his Miranda rights. You have the Miranda rights. Silence. Anything to say can well be used against you. Under the court of law, you have a right to have a lawyer. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, hello. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. Curly later told detectives that before the police officer had arrived in Mall Drive, Henley had informed him, If you wasn't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. Then here comes the confession, self-defense, corroborative, Henley story, boop, 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 boop. Yeah. They search for the victim. Indictment, we already heard about that. Trial and the convictions, we heard about that already. So, the next part of this is pretty much little footnotes and forensic. Forensic. I could talk directly. That would be great. So glad. I just actually decided to act up at the very end of my podcast. That's just beautiful. Mwah. Forensic developments. Excuse you, children. Loud as kaboot. Okay. At Hanley's trial in 1974, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at Hanley's trial in 1974, Harris County Medical Examiner Joseph raised questions as to whether John Sellers was actually a victim of quarrel. Sellers, a youth Marine, had been reported missing on July 12, 1973, and had been killed by four gunshot wounds to the chest fired from a rifle. Where are all the colors of the ones he now wearing? 22. Strangled. 
or both. Seller's car had been found burned outside in Louisiana one week after the youth had disappeared. Mm. Police had been led to Seller's body August 13, 1973 by a trucker who recalled conversating with the youth. He believed to be Henley after he observed a car struck in the sand close to where Seller's body was subsequently found. Hmm. Nobody ever mentioned that he was actually a victim of Carl's, you know? They wouldn't just assume since it was all happening and there's gunshots and... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Forensic developments, yeah. Hmm. Let me see if there's anything interesting in here. Hold on, thought, please. Not your breath. Don't stop holding your breath. I said hold the thought. Not your breath. So, I read it. Nothing too interesting that ain't been already been said. It's probably not interesting at all. Just a bunch of hula hoopla. Hoopla! So, I'm gonna end it here. If we move on to the next one, I will carry you soon see you soon when I'm looking So, until then, thank you for stopping by. Now can